All right, so we are in the sixth episode here of Christ's life. As I said, we're spending most of our time in the Gospel of John, and we'll see how at the beginning Jesus Christ was accepted by many. Now, this is going to change, uh, but at first his person, his miracles, and his message were accepted uh, by many individuals in Israel. He has not yet come to the stage of being publicly identified. He has been privately identified by John to a crowd. And this morning, or I guess uh, this evening, we're going to see him identify to two of his own disciples who Jesus the Messiah is. And those two disciples are going to leave John and begin to follow Jesus. So we are going to cover three different locations today as well. We'll start in Galilee and quickly head down to Judea, spend some time there, and then go up through Samaria back to Galilee. So we're making a big circle in John today. John is a very organized book, a very organized writer. Uh, he plots out many things in sets of threes or sets of sevens, and he likes to make circles. Uh, when he's talking about uh, the uh, journeys of Jesus. So we get to make one big loop through Israel today. And we start with the gathering of his first disciples. Now he has 12 disciples in all, and the first five of them he gathered in the first week after John identified him as the Messiah. So we begin in John one thirty-five. And it says again, the next day. Now, this is the day after Jesus identified to the Pharisees and the crowd that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that was the second day after the interrogation by the Sanhedrin began. So John was now being interrogated because his ministry was significant and they wanted to see if it had any merit, whether or not it was credible. So this is now the third day of his interrogation, and he has pointed to Jesus again and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples heard him, and they followed Jesus. Now this, we'll see, is the purpose of John's ministry, to point others to Christ. Later, we're going to see that his disciples uh, get a little frustrated that Jesus is gathering a larger group than John. John is going to tell them this is my purpose for myself to decrease so that he might increase. Now, the conversation that Jesus has with these two would-be disciples might seem strange to us, but it is a very regular way of gaining disciples. You see, these two, John and Andrew, began to follow Jesus from a close distance, not too close, not too far, close enough that Jesus would recognize that they are following him. This would be an intent to learn from him, and he would turn around and ask them, what do you seek? And their response to them would be, Rabbi or teacher, where are you staying? Now that is an odd question. We wouldn't ask that from someone that we want to learn from, but this is how they did it. Because Jesus has two options available to him as a response. Number one, he could say, get lost, none of your business. Number two, he can tell them, come and you will see. And that's exactly what he does. Jesus accepts these first two disciples as his students. And their hope in becoming his disciples is that he would be able to perfectly interpret the law for them. And that is exactly what he does through his ministry. We'll see that as he teaches his disciples and as he counters the Pharisees, what he is doing is perfectly interpreting the law of Moses for those who are following him. Now, John, we well know, he is one of the most famous disciples, and he is the writer of the book that we are studying uh, this evening. But Andrew, we don't know much about. His brother becomes a lot more well-known than him. And his brother is the third disciple to arrive on the scene. His name is Cephas, which means to hear in 
Hebrew. He has his name changed to Peter, or actually his name is Simon, which means to hear. He has his name changed to Cephas, which in Aramaic means a stone, which then John translates into Greek, which is Peter, also meaning a stone. So Jesus is exercising authority over his disciples already by changing the name of Peter. Now, Peter and John become very close friends with Jesus. They are part of his inner circle. Now, that's not an inner circle of privilege, per se, but an inner circle of fellowship. They were his closest, most dear friends on earth. James, who would join later, would become the third of his inner circle. Jesus then calls a fourth disciple. He calls this fourth one himself. Now he called, or he was, uh, he accepted John and Andrew after John the Baptist indicated that he was the Messiah. And then Andrew brought Simon. But Jesus finds Philip and tells Philip to follow him, and Philip does without any complaint. This is probably because Philip would have been baptized by John. We'll see that those who were baptized by John followed without any difficulty. But those who were not baptized by John, <clears throat> excuse me, not baptized by John, such as the Pharisees, such as Nicodemus, will take a long time to come around. All right, so Jesus calls Philip, and Philip follows. But Philip also goes and gets his friend, Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel is the first of three personalities tonight that we're going to spend some time on because John spent some time on them. It says here in John 1.45 that Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel says to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, this is a little rich because Nathaniel is from Galilee, uh, and Galilee is considered the armpit of Israel, and Nazareth is the armpit of Galilee. So it's uh, essentially the, the uh, downtrodden in Israel looking down on the downtrodden in Galilee. But this is, of course, a fulfillment of the prophecy by uh, by the, uh, the prophets, this wasn't a specific prophecy, but they said that Jesus would be despised, he would be scorned. And so Matthew turns that into a prophecy and says he shall be called a Nazarene because of his low position. Now we know that Jesus wasn't actually born in Nazareth, of course, he was born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies, but he did grow up in Nazareth. So we see that Nathaniel's already a little bit skeptical. And so when he comes to uh, see who this Messiah is, this man who his friend Philip says is the Messiah, Jesus greets him not by name, but by telling him something about himself. Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. He's making a character judgment first of all, of Nathaniel. And so Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Now, this might seem a little uh, presumptuous on Nathaniel's part, saying, yeah, I'm a perfect Israelite, but that's not really what's going on here. He's not agreeing with Jesus, per se. He's saying, how could you possibly know something about me like that? We've never met. You don't know me. How could you make a character judgment about me? Jesus is going to show Nathanael that he does know him. And he's going to show him by showing him that he knows the thoughts of his mind, the thoughts of his heart. So Jesus says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, this is a pretty quick turnaround. Something is obviously going on in the social context of this passage that we are unaware of as believers in the 21st century. We have to understand a bit of Jewish culture to understand why this was such a solid proof for Nathaniel that Jesus was who he said he was. 
So we look at a few statements made. First, the fig tree. Now, the fig tree was a place that believers, Jewish believers, would go to study their scriptures. This was looked upon by the rabbis as the best place. It was quiet. It was peaceful. And most did not have scriptures of their own. So it was a place that they could go and memorize the scriptures. But the fig tree also represents the peace of the messianic kingdom. That theme will be brought out in both Luke and in Matthew later when we look at the cursing of the fig tree. But here in Micah 4, this is a verse that they would have been well familiar with. Speaking of the Messiah, it says, He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for the mighty, uh, for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. Now, if you look at <clears throat> this title that Nathaniel gives Jesus, we see that they are messianic titles. He says, you are the son of God. This relates Jesus to the Davidic covenant, which promised an eternal son of David on the throne of Israel, the throne of Jerusalem, the king of Israel as well. We could think of Psalm 2, that he will rule over the nations. Nathaniel is recognizing that he is the Messiah and in so doing would recognize that he brings in the peace of the messianic kingdom. But now Jesus calls Nathaniel an Israelite indeed, an Israelite or a true Israelite. Where am I here? He calls him a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no guile in whom there is not a lie. And now he is making a comparison here between Nathaniel and Jacob, the first one named Israel. It was probably this passage, Genesis 27 to 28, that Nathaniel was reading and contemplating and memorizing under the fig tree, especially considering all of the references that Jesus makes in his statements to that passage, calling him an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jacob had just been sent from his home or had to just leave his home because of an act of deceit. And now many of us would probably think of Jacob as one whose life was marked by deceit, but that's not actually true. The only guile that he is ever accused of by anyone but Laban um, who was quite a deceitful guy himself. The only act of guile he was ever accused of, which he had to repent of and confess to God, was this act of deceit in calling his name Esau instead of Jacob, claiming to be someone he was not. Now, this was at the behest of his mother, and he complained and didn't want to at first, but he did go along with it. This was an act of guile for which he had to leave his home. And so Jacob, on the first night of leaving his home, was visited by the Lord in his dream. And he saw Jacob's ladder, as it's come to be known, with angels ascending and descending on the place which he then named Bethel, the house of God. Now when Jacob rightfully identified himself in Genesis 32, God changes his name. When God asks him who he is and he says, I am Jacob, God says, your name will be Israel. He changes his name, and so here is a true Israelite with one act of guile, but one act of guile which has been forgiven him. So when God is, made, or when Jesus identifies Nathanael, as an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He is making a comparison between the passage that Nathaniel had just been contemplating under the fig tree. 
Jesus answered him and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Jesus is telling him that he is going to see greater things than just knowing what is in his mind and in his heart. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, we read, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. These are his first demonstrations of his messianic knowledge. He's going to give many signs, and those signs are going to be greater than just knowing what is in man's hearts, in man's mind. But then Jesus continues and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. To me, this is proof positive that that is the passage Nathanael was reading, that Nathanael was contemplating. Jesus is giving him further proof, even after his belief, that he has believed correctly that Jesus is the Messiah who brings in the peace of Israel. John Roning summarizes this connection pretty well, I think. He says, Jesus calls Nathanael an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jacob was at Bethel fleeing for his life precisely because of his deceit. His deceit was lying about his identity. Israel was the name given to Jacob when he had lost his deceit, answering truthfully when asked, What is your name? Nathanael is like Jacob after he was renamed Israel. But Jesus claims Nathanael and the others will see what they will see is similar to what Jacob saw, angels of God ascending and descending. Nathanael's astonishment and change of mind at the revelation of Jesus recalls Jacob's astonishment at Bethel. So we see a parallel here. But now Jesus is going to perform his first miracle. And it's not going to be a public miracle yet. It's still a private miracle. In order to understand this, uh, we need to understand a bit about Jewish weddings. Now, Jewish weddings are not as different from American weddings as we might think. They are quite different, but there is a similar two-stage process. One is the ceremony, and the other is the celebration, which in uh, Jewish tradition is a feast that lasts seven days. So when we get to John 2, and we see on the third day, this is the third day of travel, the seventh day after Jesus was identified. This is pretty early on in his ministry yet. There was a wedding in Cana, about seven miles north of modern-day Cana. Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples. Now, how many disciples does Jesus have at this time? About five. So they're a group of six, and they're at this wedding, probably towards the end of the seven-day feast. And the wine ran out. This is a big no-no for Jewish weddings. The wine should never run out. And so Jesus' mother comes up to him and says, they have no wine. Now, I think I might know what was on her mind. We brought six people. It's probably our fault. But Jesus tells her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, he's not being rude here, but he is demonstrating that he is no longer under her authority. What he does is going to be out of respect for her, not out of filial responsibility. He is responsible to his father, to God the Father, and he cannot do what is not in God's will. And it is not yet God's will for him to reveal himself. And so he says, my time has not yet come. Now, normally when we see uh, Jesus saying, my time has not yet come, that is because he is speaking of his death. His death was the ultimate purpose, the ultimate will of God for his birth. But here he is making a similar connection. This also is not in God's timing. It's not time for me to reveal myself through miracles. The first miracle he is going to perform publicly will be at the Passover. Nonetheless, he does perform a miracle here. But it is a quiet miracle. 
after Jesus tells his mom, no, she goes to the servants and says, if he tells you to do something, do it. Uh, she knows who he is, and uh, she knows both his character and his power. Rather, she has faith in his character and power. And so Jesus goes to these servants at the wedding feast and tells them to fill up water pots. These water pots would have been available for ritual cleansing. No one could eat at a Jewish festival without cleansing themselves. This was part of the Mosaic law. And these pots were about 30 gallons apiece. There were six of them. That makes a lot of wine. Now, usually it takes three days to make the lowest quality wine that you can serve at a Jewish wedding. This is called new wine. Obviously, Jesus does not take three days to do this. He is creating something new. He is demonstrating his power over creation. And he tells them to draw some of the water out and bring it to the head waiter. Now, they do this trusting that uh, they're not going to get scolded by the head waiter for bringing them hand-washing water to drink. John 2.11 says that this is the first of his signs. Now, this was a private sign, not seen by many, but it was seen by the servants, and it was seen by Jesus' disciples. The effect was that his disciples began to believe in him. Now, they already believed that he could rightly interpret the law for them, but now they are looking at him and seeing the legs to the message. He is the Messiah. Their faith is growing in strength. Now, it probably is significant that Jesus' first miracle was a miracle concerning wine. One could be, and is probably the most popular uh, that people will teach, that Jesus uh, was bringing joy to the world. Now, I don't think this is the strongest interpretation of this miracle, why this miracle occurred first. But we do see that Jesus was concerned for that party and that the joy would continue. But it is most likely representative of his purpose as the bridegroom. We see in Psalm 104 that God did make wine and wine makes the heart glad. It is not repudiated in scripture. Wine is not looked at as a bad thing. Getting drunk is, but drinking wine is not. In fact, Jesus' ministry on earth begins and ends with wine. It begins in his first miracle, and it ends at the Passover Seder, where the third cup is drunk in recognition of the new covenant, the blood which he would spill in order to ratify that covenant. And then he tells them that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine, from then until the day he drinks it new in his father's kingdom. And that day, we still look forward to. And that day will be the wedding feast of the lamb. When we drink that wine together with him. Here in Luke 5, we see him identifying himself as the bridegroom. All right, moving to Judea. This is where he will begin to publicly uh, act as the Messiah. He is going to take authority over his father's house. And the reason he needs to take authority over it is because it has been taken from the proper authority of God and placed under the authority of a previous high priest named Annas. Annas retained authority that he was not supposed to retain over the temple. He had been the high priest while Jesus was young, perhaps the high priest while Jesus was in the uh, city of Jerusalem for the Passover when he was 12 years old. But Anas, though he had ceased to be the high priest, retained his position as head of the Sanhedrin and made his own sons the treasurers and high priests in the temple. 
and he had set up what the Pharisees called the Bazaar of the Sons of Anas, which was essentially a money-making endeavor, monetizing the rituals at the temple. So in John chapter 2, verse 13, where we see that the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated in the tables, seated at their tables. These were two of the endeavors of the sons of Anas. And the money that was made from this would have flowed directly to his coffers rather than to the temple treasury. And what was going on here was two things. First, the half shekel temple tax was due at this time. But the general currency in Israel had the image of Caesar on it. This was unacceptable under Mosaic law, so it would have to be changed to temple shekels. However, one of Anas's clever money-making schemes was to inflate the exchange rate. It was condemned under Mosaic law to extort from your brothers, to extort from fellow Jews. We saw when John was baptizing and they asked him how then they should go and live, he tells them not to extort from one another. This extortion is most assuredly distinct from Jesus' message that he is coming to bring the message of the coming kingdom. He is going to cleanse the temple from these money changers who are pilfering from their brothers. Secondly, we see that they are selling oxen, sheep, and doves. Now, this doesn't seem so bad unless we know what's really going on here. Under Mosaic law, they are allowed to bring any animal that is uh, any animal that is ritually pure to be sacrificed, but the priests who would examine these animals would not accept those that had not been purchased at the temple. They would find any flaw and disqualify them for that purpose, and those who came would have two choices. They could either go home and get another animal and perhaps have that one rejected as well, or if they lived too far away, their only option was to purchase one at the temple. And these as well would have been highly inflated. So they are essentially gouging those who came to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. They are robbing their brothers and using the Lord's sacrifices to do that. And so Jesus made a scourge of cords and begins whipping them, driving them out of the temple. He pours out the coins of the money changers. He overturns their tables and he says, take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. He is taking authority over his father's house. He is the Messiah. The son of God has the right to do that. He is doing what only the Messiah can do. But then his disciples remembered what was written, that zeal for your house will consume me. This is from Psalm 69, verse 9. And we see that this zeal of the Lord's does, in the end, consume him. You might say it eats him up. An ass is going to be the one who stands in judgment of Jesus first. He will be his first judge when they try to have Jesus executed. And it's exactly this zeal that he demonstrated in the temple that is going to cause an ass to be an enemy of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's this act in the temple that triggers the Sanhedrin examination of Jesus Christ. They will examine Christ in the same way they examined John. They will see if his ministry is significant, and then they will see if it is credible. They will start by observing, and then they will begin to oppose him in public. But first, they ask for a sign a sign for the purpose of demonstrating his authority. They see him cleansing the temple, and they know that this is something that not just anyone has the authority to do, but that the Messiah would have the authority to do. And so his answer of a sign is that he will destroy the, or if they destroy the temple, that in three days he will raise it up. 
This as well becomes a clause in the argument against Jesus when they try to convict him. They will say that he threatened the temple, and threatening the temple was punishable by death. But the disciples knew that he was not speaking of the temple, but rather the temple of his body. This is a realization they came to later. Perhaps John had spent some of his decades after the death and resurrection of Christ pondering those statements by Jesus. But this is a sign that he uses for unbelievers. He will give many signs to believers, but this sign of the resurrection is specifically for unbelievers. In Matthew 12, when, the, uh, when he is officially opposed by the Sanhedrin delegation, he calls them in a, an evil and adulterous generation which craves for a sign. They said, give us a sign. He had proved, proven himself many times with signs, and, but he says, there will be no sign given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now this sign of Jonah is actually given three times to the unbelievers after Jesus ceases his sign demonstrations to prove himself to be the Messiah. He will still give signs and still heal those who do believe, those who demonstrate their belief through confession. But he will not openly perform miracles for those who do not believe, save for only the act of resurrection. He will resurrect Lazarus after he has been rejected. He will himself be resurrected after he was rejected. And in the last days, he will resurrect the two witnesses in Jerusalem after they have been killed by the Antichrist. These three resurrections are evidence for Israel of their Messiah. All right, moving on to chapter 3. Because of this uh, event in the temple, he started to gain the notice of some of the higher-ups in Israel. We'll see that he gained it all over Israel, and in fact, that was probably the purpose of beginning his open demonstration of his authority as the Messiah in Jerusalem, because there were probably about six million people in Jerusalem during the Passover. And they would have come from all over Israel and all over the, uh, the believing world at that time. And they would have quickly carried that message back to their hometowns. And so this was the most effective way to disseminate this announcement of his messianic authority. But one whose attention he gained was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, would have opposed the bazaars of the sons of Anas. One, Pharisees do not profit, at least at this time, off their ministries. They would not receive money from, the, uh, from teaching. They would have uh, jobs which would afford them the ability to teach for free. So they did not like what was going on at the temple. And perhaps Nicodemus thinks, here is someone sympathetic to Phariseeism. So in John 3, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we recognize the source of Jesus, that he came from the Father. But Nicodemus also comes with a backload of theology. He does not believe in an afterlife. He does, or he does believe that all, no, sorry, he does believe in an afterlife, but he believes that all ethnic Jews will be there. All ethnic Jews, by virtue of being born a Jew, have a place prepared for them in the Messianic kingdom. Now, they do have a concept of new birth but it's one that is not spiritual, it is physical. So Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, says, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He is refuting Nicodemus's theology. 
that the first birth, the fleshly birth, is good enough to get one into the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom. So Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, most people would probably look at this and think Nicodemus is just as confused as we are the first time we read it. But Jesus doesn't teach in this manner. Jesus uses something that the listener understands in order to teach them something they do not yet understand. He is not starting with an unknown concept. This is foreign to Jewish teaching. He starts with a known concept and then draws a distinction between that and something true of a spiritual nature. And so we're going to look at seven ways to be born again. Six of them are only physical, and the seventh is one that Nicodemus did not at that time understand, and it is spiritual new birth. So these first six are found in Pharisaic writings. The first would be Gentile conversion to Judaism. Now this one comes closest to a spiritual rebirth, but it does not necessarily have spiritual connotations. One could become a Jew by Pharisaic reasoning without actually believing in God. This is a sad truth. Unfortunately, this is also the truth for us in the church. Many will come into the church never having actually believed in Jesus as the Savior who covers their sins. This Gentile conversion could be as simple as circumcision. But the Pharisees would say that one who becomes a proselyte is like a child newly born. So one who becomes a Jew is born again. This would be a concept that Nicodemus had for this phrase, born again. It was not available to Nicodemus as he was born a Jew. He could not undergo this new birth. Another new birth in Pharisaic writings is the coronation of a king. When a king is crowned king, he is like one born anew. His state in life is completely changed. It is a physical distinction, though. This was also not available to Nicodemus, as he is not from the house of David, and he is not apart from Jeconiah. But the third one was available to Nicodemus, and it is evident that he underwent this new birth. That is the bar mitzvah. Now, bar mitzvah is, was a, a phrase coined after this period of time, but the concept was still there. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. This was the coming of age for a Jewish male. When he came under the authority of the law, where he was responsible to it, rather than his parents responsible to it for him. This was as a new birth. He was born again to the law. Marriage as well. It does not say here explicitly in the passage that Nicodemus was married. However, implicitly it is here. It says that Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. You don't have to be married to be a Pharisee. But it says that he was a ruler of the Jews. This means he was a member of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. In order to be a part of the Sanhedrin, you not only had to be married, but you had to have children as well. So based on this statement, we know that Nicodemus had undergone this new birth as well. He was married. He was as one born again. When one is ordained a rabbi at the age of 30, they are considered born again. This had happened to Nicodemus as well. He was a teacher of the Jews. But Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel as well, using this definite article. Sometimes this is skipped in our translations. The NASB has an excellent translation and uses the definite article. He is the teacher of Israel. This means he is not just any old rabbi 
but he has been elevated to the head of a rabbinic seminary. He is the teacher of Israel. He is probably the head of the seminary in Jerusalem, which was over all of the other seminaries. He was the teacher of Israel. He had been born again four different times. Once when he was 13, once at 20, once at 30, once at 50. And so his issue is not how can one be born again, but how can one be born again when he is old? Once he's used up all of his options, what more is for that him to do but to start life over again? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Because he is still stuck in the physical. His concept of new birth is only physical. Jesus is teaching him a new spiritual truth. And so Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now he's going to interpret that for us. He says that which is born of flesh is flesh, correlating to water. In Pharisaic writings, water is used as a means of first birth. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. This is a new truth for Nicodemus. Jesus is teaching him how to be spiritually reborn. It's a two-step process, Jesus explains to him. One step, God must take. The second step, the believer must take. He gives this to him two different ways. One from Numbers 23, where he relates it to how Moses lifted up a staff with a serpent on it. And those who looked at that staff would be healed. And so he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The first step is that God must lift up the Son. And he does so when he lifts him up on the cross. God must provide an atonement so that those who believe can have eternal life. One of these steps cannot be missing. Jesus paid for the sins, all of the sins of the world on the cross. But one is not saved without belief. And one could believe, but if God had not provided the sacrifice on the cross, that belief would be nothing. We saw that on Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15, that if there is no resurrection, then there is no hope. Our gospel is worthless. If there is no death, there is no resurrection. It's a game of dominoes. But now he uses this first example of Moses, and then he draws it into a very clear and concise gospel statement. In fact, it is probably the most famous gospel statement in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God does his part, and we receive that. It is a two-step process. Nicodemus does not disappear from Scripture. He is not here converted either. For a Jew, it is a long, hard process coming to receive the Messiah. They have to, in essence, reprogram their way of thinking about everything in Scripture. For Nicodemus, we see this struggle occur. We meet him again towards the end of Jesus' ministry when the Pharisees are trying to decide what to do about him. Nicodemus seems to be the only one among the crowd who is sympathetic towards Jesus' ministry. He has not yet become a believer. He has not yet become a follower. But he says, uh, he who came to him before, Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, he was one of the crowd of the 71 there, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows that he is doing what he is doing, does it? Nicodemus says he deserves a trial. Nicodemus will not be there to witness Jesus' trial. 
he's a little preoccupied. Having been converted between John 7 and John 19. In fact, when he is hung, or hanged rather, on the cross, and he dies for our sins, when he comes off, we then see that he died for Nicodemus as well, and Nicodemus received that through faith. Because Nicodemus, who first came to him by night, also came after he was taken off the cross, and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. That is no small sum of myrrh. You remember the kings, or the uh, wise men, rather, who brought Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh, because these were incredibly expensive gifts. We might ask then, where did Nicodemus get all this myrrh? Well, he was not paid for his teaching, but he was a well digger. He dug wells for a living, and he made a good living doing so. He was well respected in Jerusalem. He was among the three wealthiest and most respected men in all of Jerusalem. Now, this makes sense as he was the head of the rabbinic seminary there. However, his conversion to the way, to the followers of Jesus, made the unbelievers in Israel turn against him. They made many stories about uh, his impoverished state because the Jews had a concept of God blesses with money those whom he, uh, those who please him, that one who is poor has been cursed by God, one that is rich has been blessed by God. So they thought this was proof positive that Nicodemus being, uh, becoming impoverished means that he was cursed by God. So they made stories, perhaps they were true, that Nicodemus lost everything to follow Christ. But that does not mean that he was poor because he had gained the greatest treasure, which was a place in the Messianic kingdom, not by birthright, but by Jesus' righteousness and spiritual new birth. He had gained everything. The last stop in our trip here, and I don't know if we're going to make it all the way through, is Samaria. He has a divine appointment to make in Samaria. In John 3.22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was also baptizing in the Anan near Salim because there was much water there. For Jewish baptism, you needed full immersion. Towards the end of the dry season, as the water began to recede, it was necessary for them to move north, north on the Jordan. And so people were coming and being baptized, and John had not yet been thrown in prison. Now we're going to look at John being thrown in prison a little later, but we will also see that what happens to the messenger, what happens to John, also happens to the Messiah. It happens to the king as well. John's ministry is a microcosm of Jesus. He offers water baptism. Jesus offers spirit baptism. He is investigated by the Pharisees, by the Sanhedrin. So will Jesus be investigated. He is brought up on false charges, and so is Jesus brought up on false charges, and they are both executed. This will mark the end of John's ministry, because what is recorded here by John, John the Apostle, is the last record we have of John before he is imprisoned and executed. He will say a few words from prison, but this is really the end of his ministry. John will say of Jesus, well, first of all, he will say of Jesus that um, it's good for Jesus' baptism to be growing in popularity more than John's because John must diminish so that Christ might increase. But then he, speaking of Jesus, says, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. This is speaking of God giving to Jesus 
the Spirit without measure. Jesus is given the sevenfold measure of the Spirit, prophesied in Isaiah 11, where it says, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his root will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Jesus is given the full measure of the Spirit, while we in the church are given partial measure of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, we are doled out certain spiritual gifts. Jesus has them all in his body, and we being part of his body are part of the all, but each individual has his own place. And so it says, now there are variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Jesus is given that fullness of the Spirit, and by which he is demonstrated to be the Messiah. But now Jesus begins to draw the attention of the Pharisees and the rest of the Sanhedrin, and he is going to leave Judea because of it, the baptism is gaining much popularity. His demonstration in the temple uh, drew a lot of eyes to him. Now, this was the divine plan, but it's not yet the divine plan that he be interrogated or investigated by the Sanhedrin. God has a divine appointment for him in Samaria, and he drives him up to Samaria. Now, it's not normal for a Jew to pass through Samaria. In fact, it is quite dangerous. It is more dangerous, however, for them to travel south, coming from Galilee to Jerusalem, rather than coming from Jerusalem north back to Galilee. So Jesus, though he would usually probably avoid Samaria, is still taking the safer route going north. We'll see that he is not allowed to go south at one point. But they do this because the Sumerians are still a little bitter about an event that happened in the days of Ezra when they were not allowed to take part in the rebuilding of the temple. They had been mixed with heathen nations, and they were not only ethnically distinct from the Jews now, but they were also religiously distinct. They had syncretized with the pagan religions, and although they continued to worship the one true God of Israel, they also worshipped a bunch of other gods. They were bitter that Ezra would not let them participate in the rebuilding of the temple, and so they rebuilt their own temple, and they built it on Mount Gerizim. You'll probably remember Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal from Deuteronomy. But they also took the first five books of Moses, the the Pentateuch, and they changed every reference to Jerusalem to Mount Gerizim. So wherever it said Mount Moriah, it now says Mount Gerizim. It's kind of a handy way to uh, make your theology right, just change the Bible. But they also only accepted the first five books of Moses. They did not accept the law, or rather they did not accept the prophets or the writings. In fact, they believed that the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18.18 18, that would come after Moses was the only prophet that would come after Moses. Nothing was accepted that was not from Moses other than the redaction of a few words here and there. Now this is important because when Jesus comes and meets one of these Samaritan women, he has a theological discussion with her. And just as he taught Nicodemus something new about the new birth, he is going to teach this Samaritan woman something new as well. Let's see. When he meets her, the Samaritan, he tells her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away to the city to buy food, and therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, which was probably a derogatory way for, him, for her to refer to him, this was not a compliment, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? 
Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, this does not mean that they have no contact whatsoever, but this means that there are no relationships such as this between Jews and Samaritans. A Jew cannot indebt himself to a Samaritan by receiving something free from them. If they receive something, it is not kosher until they pay for it. Jesus is asking her for a free drink, and he is going to offer her something free as well. And in this discourse, he reveals five things to her, which it is his authority as the Messiah to reveal. He reveals to her a new kind of life, eternal life, something that she does not believe in being a Samaritan. We'll see that the Sadducees have the same issue. Because they only accept the books of Moses, they do not believe in the resurrection taught by the prophets. He is going to teach her of eternal life. As he begins to teach her, she starts using more polite phrases to refer to him. Here she calls him sir, realizing that he is also offering her something. And then he is going to reveal something about her as well. He is going to reveal her sin to her. He's going to show her her need for this living water. He says to her to go get her husband, and she says, I have no husband. He says, you're right, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. He knows this already, and yet he is still offering her this free gift of living water. He is showing her her sinfulness, and yet God's love for her, nonetheless. God came to die for sinners while they were still sinners. But just like God knew what was in Nathaniel's head, he knows what's in this Samaritan woman's head. He reveals that to her, and by which she begins to believe. Now, this belief is not fully developed here. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What is important about the Samaritans? They only believe in one prophet after Moses, and that is the Messiah. So she begins already to believe that it might be possible he is the Messiah. And once again, she's using a more polite way of referring to him. He is a prophet. But she wants to divert attention from her own sin, something we all do, something that any of us who have ever witnessed to an unbeliever are familiar with as well. As soon as it gets down to where the rubber meets the road, you need a savior because you're a sinner. They bring up issues like, where did Cain's wife come from? It's an easy way to distract, and Jesus is not distracted, though he does answer her question. She asks about true worship. Do we worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem? Who's right, the Samaritans or the Judeans? He answers her, and he says, An hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He doesn't say, well, I, I guess you can worship here. That's okay, because... Pretty soon, it's not going to matter anyways. He says, no, you're wrong. It's not here in Mount Gerizim. It is in Jerusalem because that's where salvation is coming from, Jerusalem. But nonetheless, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, this is interesting because he is not speaking of the messianic kingdom here. The Messianic kingdom will have a centralized place of worship in Jerusalem. He is giving an indication now of what would become the church age, where the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer will be the proper place for worship so that whoever believes has the right to worship in any location. Jesus is, is uh, telling this woman who is somewhere between Gentile and Jew, that there is a time and a place for her as well in God's plan. Then he reveals something about God as well. Only the Messiah would have this ability to re reveal something so intimate about God. He says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth 
And from this, the woman says, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She recognizes that he is declaring all things to her. And so, based on her faith, that she believed he was a prophet, the prophet, the coming prophet, the Messiah who would reveal all things to her, he reveals himself to her. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, I'm going to end there.